You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. And welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. It's just like every week, Kyla, we're, we're apart for these. It's remote. Every week, we're apart. People, think, people must think we spend so much time together, because we like work together, and we do the podcast, and you do a lot of filming for some of my videos, and we do like trials together. And, you know, we're involved in these, some organizations, but that's not the case. Yeah. I mean, half the time it's uh, virtual. We're, 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 uh, we're, we're, we're on something, some meeting with the staff where we're in Zoom or we're talking by text message. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, or, or, or some other direct messages on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, lots of times, I, I mean, we go a long period of time, sometimes a couple of weeks without actually being in the same room. Yeah, which, I was going to uh, say, we go days at a time without seeing each other. <laughs> yeah, which is surprising because, I mean, we're basically, well, we are business partners. Um, and we've got all of yeah, these various exactly. different projects going. And, uh, you yeah. know, when you're out of town, I'm taking care of your dog as I am right now. Now, one of the My things dog I've, sees more of you than I do. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and I get along very well with him. And uh, when he barks, when he's at your place, when we're doing the podcast with me, he's just sitting here quite contented at my feet. Yeah, for now. We'll yeah. see. Anyway, how's the Yukon? The Yukon, yes, I'm back in the Yukon. Uh, the Yukon is not snowy yet. It is not that cold. It's about two degrees Celsius. Um, and it's the Yukon, which means that like, it's, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. It's a very unique culture here. I was talking to uh, our friend Harley Wagner today and uh, he was asking me what the temperature was and I was trying to do the calculations <laughs> to convert it into Fahrenheit for him. Anyway, I told him you were way, way up there. Uh, and uh, he was mightily impressed. But of course, yeah. you're up there sometimes. I'm, this is like the second time this month. Yeah, the second time this month, third time this year. And uh, there were supposed to be six trips this year, but it'll be five because one of my trials, I finally got stayed. So oh, there you go. I think we I should got, do I one got, day a Yukon special on the podcast. Yukon special. And what, what, what will we do? talk about Yukon impaired driving laws because you know actually that is probably a, a good idea yeah. because Yukon has introduced some new legislation similar to British Columbia they're strengthening their roadside impaired driving scheme yeah um so you know there is Yukon impaired driving news to talk about I haven't read the bill so I'm not prepared to talk about it today but for those of our listeners who are Yukon practitioners uh things are about to change yeah, well, you're going to have to add a uh, chapter in your book, in the second edition, in your book on roadside prohibitions for, for Yukon, because well, it's Western actually, Canada. I'll have, I'll have to add Yukon and Manitoba. Yeah, I don't consider Manitoba Western Canada. I mean, they're yeah, technically the center. Who you ask. 
the center of Canada is somewhere between Brandon and uh, and Winnipeg. So <laughs> everyone, everyone in Ontario thinks Manitoba is Western Canada. That's true. That's true. Well, we have no listeners from Ontario, so no problem. Although I know we have some in Quebec. What you- uh, shout out to our listener from Quebec who, who uh, <laughs> direct messages me and, uh, and gives the feedback every week. I always appreciate it. Um, and uh, and I've been sending uh, uh, photos of Wrigley to him. So there so you Paul, go. That's what happens if you're a listener and you and you comment on Twitter, you get a photo of Wrigley. So Paul, I wanted yeah. to talk to you this week about a judicial review decision that we got. Ah yes, well I've been waiting to hear about it because it's not uh, it's not a written decision yet, right? It's uh, we we just have the oral decision. Is that correct? It's an oral judgment. Yeah, that's okay. correct. It was an oral judgment, um, and it's, hold on, I'm having an AirPod malfunction. Can you hear me? I can hear you. It sounded like you were in outer space there for a minute. Yeah, I'm just going to take this one out. <laughs> it sounded like you were in outer space slightly longer than William Shatner was in outer space. Oh, so for like 84 seconds. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, no. Um, so, Anna at our office, article student, soon to be lawyer, any minute now, um, and, and I did a judicial review together, and that was super fun. It was nice, you know, having someone with me to do it. Um, and there were a couple of issues, uh, one of which was delay. Um, as you and I know, there were lots and lots of people who, over the course of the years and the various challenges that have taken place to the IRP scheme, have filed uh, constitutional challenges to the lawfulness of the entire scheme and also challenged the validity of their decisions on their administrative law grounds. And a big sort of unanswered question was, what's going to happen to all these people who brought these constitutional challenges, elected to await the outcome of the constitutional challenge as opposed to have their cases just heard on the admin law grounds across their fingers, when it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, it was only in May 2020 that the Supreme Court of Canada was finally like, oh, we're not going to grant leave on the last most recent challenge. So the question was, what happens to these people? Yeah, and, I mean, there's uh, cases going back a few years, like several years. Yeah. That, and May 2020 was dealing with a case already that was a few years old. Yeah, so and, we are. And now we're, now we're at the end of 2021. So we argued a case that was from 2017. Uh, where the you know the superintendent of motor vehicles was now saying, oh well, there's so much unreasonable delay in bringing this petition. You shouldn't have waited for what the court of appeal had to say. You shouldn't have waited for what the Supreme Court of Canada, whether they were going to grant leave. Once you lost in BC Supreme Court, you should have just treated that like that was the end of the road. And we took the position that you know, yeah, there was no express agreement to hold them all in abeyance pending the completion of the pathway of litigation but everybody knew that this was the pathway it was going to take and um the judge agreed that essentially even though there wasn't an express agreement to hold them in advance when the superintendent didn't take any steps to try and move things along after you know the original judgment and at the end of it the Supreme Court of Canada denying leave sent a letter saying, you know, hey, okay, time to schedule all these for hearings. They kind of tacitly acquiesced to the delay. 
Well, one would think that part of the issue with the delay would have been the issue that we have just trying to schedule the hearings. Well, I mean, oh my goodness. The system is broken, Paul. We I know. We had months, months. The entirety of 2021, we have been trying to get dates, calling in on the second Tuesday of every month in this ridiculous telephone lottery where you can get one day a month. Um, and, and the entirety of 2021, we have been unsuccessful in securing dates. This is ridiculous. I mean, they want to rely on the delay to seek to strike these matters when there was an, one outstanding issue that had a huge effect on a bunch of them. I mean, a bunch of them we've abandoned because they, you know, it was the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear the appeal. Yeah, there were lots um, where there which, were no which, grounds which, left to argue. Yeah, where there was no grounds, but the ones who were waiting with other grounds left to argue now are in this situation where it's impossible to get a date. And the government wants okay. to take the the government took the position in this case that those ones, the delay was so long that they shouldn't be heard, period. Well, I'm glad okay. the court, I'm glad the court agreed with you. Well, and I mean, also, you know, it's it's a little bit disingenuous, particularly when I've been emailing them lately and saying, like, here's, you know, four, five, six files that I want to set down for a hearing. Um, I think that I can do this in less than two hours. I think yeah. I can keep my argument to my, you know, my half of the two hour time limit. Uh, I only want to argue these points now because everything else is, in my view, resolved or, or not viable. Um, can we set this down? And they, they almost exclusively respond, no, no, it'll need to be a day long hearing. But when you call in to book, even assuming you get through, you only, you're limited to the dates for one month. So you book two months in advance. So if I call in next month in November, I'm booking dates for January. So you only get all the court days that are available in January open to you anyway. Then subtract from that all the days where you're already booked for something else. Subtract from that all the days where they're already booked for something else and they're not available to have it heard. Subtract from that all the days that the court doesn't actually have available because it's already booked for something else. And then on top of that, in that one phone call, if you get through the queue of tens of thousands of people who are calling at the same time to try and get a date, you can only book one matter. So if I have 15, 20 clients who all need a hearing that's going to take more than two hours, I can only feasibly, assuming the stars align and I get through, set one of those clients for hearing per month. That's ridiculous. The system is stacked against justice. That is ridiculous. It's a supply chain issue. Well, and also <laughs> it's completely prejudicial to, uh, it's completely prejudicial to like, well, it makes it smaller look like, law firms. You know, well, it's not just, well, yeah, but do bigger law firms have some other advantage? Yeah, because if you have a staff of like 35 legal assistants and 20 paralegals and 50 lawyers, then you have an army of people that can be dialing at the same time. We do not. How is this dialing at the same time thing exist? 
How is this not done through email? It's ridiculous. I, you, you book everything else. Everything else in the world is done through email. I can get hockey tickets. I can get concert tickets online. And there are also systems in place to prevent people from doing things like having 50 of their friends phone to try and get them concert tickets. But we don't have this for actual justice. Have you written to the Chief Justice of the BC Supreme Court to explain this? Because this is, I mean, to me, this is shocking. Every time you tell me, I've never had to do this, right? Because well, I don't come do in, these. Come in this for the first no, no, Tuesday no, no. or the second Tuesday of I'm, November. I'm, I'm <laughs> dropping off my children at school um, when you're in there at 8.30 making these calls or whatever time you start. Is that when it starts, 8.30? Well, you want to start dialing at 8.25. But even then, I mean, it's it, it, there's no need. I mean, this this cannot exist like this. It cannot. It's got to change. It's how this how this happened is ridiculous, and it's just a full on impediment to getting a hearing. Well, I, I wrote about this in the Lawyers Daily twice now. I've published two pieces. The first piece I published was just about the absurdity of the system. The yeah. second piece I published, um, I wrote about a solution that I thought I had, which was. Um, it's very unpopular, I'm sure, with the judiciary, and I'm making them hate me. But have to just sit on the weekends and extend the court hours. BC Supreme Court sits from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. with an hour and a half lunch and two 15-minute breaks. I so I, from, fully, I agree with you. I look at the salaries like, they earn. Make them work the odd Saturday. One Saturday. Three three hundred and thirteen thousand dollars a year, and there's six hours of sitting time per day. Sorry, not even six hours. Whatever, less than six hours of sitting time per day. And a judge doesn't sit five days a week, four weeks of a month. I will never be a judge, and I'm sure you will never be a judge. But if I was a judge, <laughs> I could tell you, like this. <laughs> I work on Saturdays. I work on Sundays. We work on the evening. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be I aspiring to be a judge to be able to work four hours a day four days a week. Well, I mean, it does sound attractive, though, when you think about earning that no. big of a paycheck and not being expected to come in and sit on the weekend. And but I guess that, like, there it's are not attractive to me. It's not attractive to me. I like to work. I want to get something done. I've got my yep. my limited period of time on the planet. You know, I'm I, I think the human existence is basically to for the purpose of work. That's what I was taught and what I what I brought into myself, and I also enjoy doing things that are pleasurable, yes, but you know, there, there's purpose through work, right? And like, if that's the work, I, that's to me not not fulfilling my purpose in society. Yeah, um, they they proposed this model in England um, as a solution to the backlog that was created as a result of the pandemic, because don't forget, the courts shut down for so long. That this was already a problem before COVID nineteen. Yeah, it it's got worse, worse now. Way worse after. Um, in they proposed this as a solution in England, and the barristers voted it down because of childcare issues. But like, I'm sorry, if you don't want to have your your hearings in the evening or on a Saturday or on a Sunday, then don't like don't book them then. But there are plenty of lawyers out there like me. Um, who have solutions to child care issues that would 
take the burden off the rest of the days by having us heard in these unusual like time slots. Well, not just that. You're not talking about doing it every weekend and every evening. No, I've you know, been doing it for a like couple months you know, to clear if, the if backlog have, and then read if you're a, if you're a lawyer and you have one every three months on a Saturday, arrange some childcare. Yeah, if you're booking two months in advance, I think you can, you know, find a babysitter. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know. I just to, to me, it's it's so frustrating, especially because we have like this niche practice area, and it's not like any of our clients can turn around and go to a giant firm and be like, "Will you argue this case?" Because they're not going to take the case because it's not their area. They don't know what what the law is around. IRP oh sure they can figure it out they can try and reinvent the wheel um yeah and uh, it'll cost you twenty five thousand dollars instead of you know the pittance that we charge Mm -hmm. for these jrs which frankly is a gift um yeah uh, it's a it's a gift and it's great if you win if you don't win of course you've gone through the whole effort of it believing in in the justice system and coming out feeling like you've you put it all on the line and got nothing anyway that isn't what i wanted to talk about i wanted I'm just all glad to we, talk I'm about glad our, our winning <laughs> yeah our, our winning decision we won because the second thing that we argued obviously the delay issue is one one aspect of it but we also had like we still had to overcome the actual decision itself and demonstrate that the adjudicator's decision was unreasonable yeah. And this decision was really interesting because there were two things that I'm going to tell you. You don't, we haven't even talked about it. Two things that the adjudicator did that I'm going to tell you, and you're going to go instantly, you know, we're wrong. But yet still, these adjudicators continue to do it. We all so the time, there's all of these things that happen all the time. And they're so the consistent client, that it's a pattern, but I don't know what it is. So go ahead and tell me. The client's position was that he was drinking while he was in his car right before he was stopped by police. Surprisingly more common than people think that this occurs. Um, And one of the things that the adjudicator relied on to reject his evidence that this was going on was the fact that when he failed the ASD test, he didn't volunteer to the police officer, oh, well, you'd asked me about drinking 15 minutes before I blew, and I told you I hadn't been drinking, but now that I failed the test, I have reasonably concluded from that information that actually that must have a bearing on the outcome of the test, and I was drinking. That's ridiculous. But it, there's right? a funny thing to it, of course, because you've got the police dealing with somebody, and the police, the, the person says, I wasn't drinking. And the police officer doesn't believe them and mm-hmm. then gets a test where there's a fail, at which point the officer should, in my view, say, well, obviously you were drinking because I just got a fail. My concern is whether or not it's a reliable fail. Yeah. And it's uh, not a reliable fail if you've been drinking recently. So tell me when you last had a drink before we, you know, did this. Yeah. See what I I'm mean, saying? there's. Yeah, there's that angle of it, but there's also just the general, like, unreasonableness of faulting somebody for not volunteering information to police in a circumstance where they have no legal obligation to do so, and essentially thrusting the burden on somebody to adequately, as the court put it, articulate their defense at the roadside. Well, so forget in, the review in a hearing. circumstance where, they, where they've just blown into an approved screening device and therefore the police officer believes that they have reason to conclude the person has committed an offense. And therefore, their right to silence is engaged and their right to counsel is engaged. 
Yeah, and let's not forget, right. as the judge pointed out in the judgment, that not only would require would it require him to make an admission in the context of when his right to counsel and right to silence is engaged, but it also would require him to admit to having committed an offense that is consuming alcohol while in the vehicle. Yeah, and having open liquor in the vehicle. Yeah. Well, also, officer, there's uh, well, a body also in the fully, trunk. And also fully <laughs> understanding the, the procedure. I mean, the expectation yeah. that, and we see this in decisions all the time, that you would have volunteered this information. The expectation that, that the tribunal has that people would understand the peril of mouth alcohol. Yeah. You know, everybody... We, we, it, go ahead. We see so much stupidity about that, about that expectation. Like, decisions that say things like, well, you didn't tell me whether you were shocked at the fail reading, so I can conclude from that that you knew you were going to fail and you must have been over the limit. Who the cares what their response was to seeing the fail? Your emotional state doesn't dictate the truthfulness of your evidence. The ongoing problem that we have with the scheme is that the tribunal makes these um, efforts, these contortions they go through in order to reject people's evidence in circumstances where people are being truthful and circumstances where people are innocent. Um, and accept the police evidence in circumstances where the police evidence is horrible um, mm -hmm. and prefer the police evidence. And it is, uh, you know, it, it reveals to me, um, you know, a tribunal that's not doing its job. It's not what you see with any other tribunal. Um, and, it, uh, and it's been an ongoing problem. It's been better or worse during certain years. Um, and it's not great right now. But basically, you know, for lack of a better term, the court refers to it as parsing. Um, some earlier decisions talked about reverse engineering, starting from the presumption of guilt and then seeking any piece of information that you can use to, to reject a person's evidence. This is not how a tribunal is supposed to function. And right. this is yet another case that demonstrates that this is not how a tribunal is supposed to function. You're not supposed to be nitpickingly going through the evidence, seeking some method of rejecting it. And this has become something in British Columbia that is almost accepted by our court. And, you know, I just keep thinking that one of these days, one of these cases is going to make it to the Supreme Court of Canada. I don't know how it would, because it may not have a national interest, but this is something you would not see, as we know, you wouldn't even see in Alberta. Because the tribunal in Alberta recognizes when it's when it's unfair. The tribunal in Alberta recognizes when charter rights are violated. Nobody, Kyla, in this province, no citizen of this province said to themselves when the IRP scheme was invoked that, wow, this is great. Now the police can violate people's charter rights and still get the sample and punish people. Oh, that that's not true. Lots of, lot, lots of people say that because lots of people, for some twisted reason, believe that if you're driving drunk or even accused of driving drunk, that you don't deserve charter rights. Oh, okay, but did people really think that our charter rights should just be thrown out the window just because the sample was a fail? And that's lots what's happened that. with this. That's what's happened with this system. Well, I don't think that's what I don't think that's what the law is intended but to do. Paul, but Paul, if the adjudicator gets it wrong, 
you have that super convenient, easy to access remedy of taking it to judicial review in BC Supreme Court if you can get a hearing date in nine months. Yeah, if your lawyer has more than 12 files, then it won't happen within a year. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can only do 12 um, in a year. Now, how do we can. deal with the fact that, how do, the, do we deal with the fact that we've got 40 or 50 of these outstanding? Well, thankfully, half the time I write my argument for the judicial review and send it to them, they concede. Um, well, but, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of work too. And, and we, we, try and, we try and run representative cases that deal with systemic well, issues at once. Well, that's been the smartest thing you did. That was the now, smartest issue. But, but I, I feel sometimes that the court is punishing you for doing that. And, and the, certainly we see that in decisions, right? Where you're arguing all of these systemic arguments and the tribunal comes back and makes it sound like you're running arguments that aren't relevant just because you're running a relevant argument they've heard a hundred times and rejected a hundred times, but it hasn't been decided in BC Supreme Court. Yep. Well, I'm not going to let a tribunal keep me down. <laughs> well, no, I mean, the point is those issues have, haven't been heard in BC Supreme Court because you can't get a hearing for a day. Nope. Uh, and that's fine. Whatever. I'm going to fight the system. The system's not going to fight me. <laughs> Please go ahead. Uh, the, la the third thing in this judicial review decision that I wanted to talk about was another thing because you mentioned reverse engineering. And this always seemed to me to be a weird thing. So as you know, and as I've said numerous times on this podcast, as have you, and as anybody will tell you if they're worth their salt as a lawyer, if you're asked by the police if you've been drinking, do not answer. Don't lie. Don't say no. Don't make up some statement. Provide a different truth, the, the different time than the truth. Just say nothing because nothing can't be held against you, but something can be. And the tribunal will often seize upon somebody's dishonesty at the roadside, where they say, for example, they had their last drink an hour ago, and then they turn around on review and go, actually, I just finished a sip of beer while I was running out the door to go pick up my kid because I realized I was late for picking them up from hockey, and that's why I failed the test. Right? Well, like, and the person's thinking of the, their complete drink. I drank yeah, the bulk it of it an hour ago, but I drank it. it. It and the, the, the tribunal rejects it, and the court, the court is fine with that analysis, which is, again, something I pointed out before. It's, that it's we've absurd got, to me. That, that, that this is not human. This is not the way that it works in a human system. This is absurd. Um, and that the court is, in this province, willing to, to back up the tribunal in that assessment, frankly, is embarrassing. Well, let, me, embarrassing let me finish my me. thought here. So... There are all these circumstances where people say that. People say that because they misinterpret the question. They don't understand what they're being asked the time that they finished their last drink. You know, they well, say, we well, never know exactly what the question is either, because there's two different, two or three different versions that show up in the police reports. All right. So carrying on with my thoughts, Paul. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, you being asked, you know, have you had anything to drink tonight? Yeah, I had a couple beers an hour ago. And then the officer writes down an hour ago. They don't realize that the officer might be interpreting that to do with residual mouth alcohol. But they've never heard of residual mouth alcohol before. Um, or when was your last drink? Which to the officer means when did you finish it, but to the driver it doesn't. And the tribunal will go, well, any logical person would know that he's asking when you finished it. I don't know how any logical person would know that. It's not implicit in the question, but that's the way they interpret it. 
And if you outright lie, if you say I panicked and I lied, they'll use that against you. We've got a clear deception means that you're deceiving us now. And even if you're subject to some type of power imbalance or oppression, the type of things that the courts may, in the context of a criminal case, find deprive you of an operating mind, like if you're in a state of panic because you're fleeing an assault, or if the officer threatens you, or if you are a person of color who has previously had negative interactions with police, and so you lie to protect yourself, which the Ontario Superior Court has found is not something that negatively enhances credibility when you're dealing with those racial power imbalances between police and individuals of color. How can you negatively enhance enhance is what you just said. Negatively negatively impacts. I knew what you meant. (laughs) Yes. It's proof that Um, I'm listening. Go ahead. Yes. Um, All of those things, no matter what justification. I had a client who had like ADHD who, who just blurted stuff out as a result of the, the multiple stimulations in the situation. It wasn't even listening to the questions. It was just blurting things out. And they held that against him, discriminating him against him on the basis of his disability. But still, the tribunal will say, you didn't tell the truth at the roadside, so therefore I find that you're lying in your affidavit. You lied then, you lied now. Every single time, it's a direct line from what you said at the roadside, if it wasn't the exact God's honest down to the second truth, to, uh, to you lie, you're lying in your affidavit as a result. There is never an analysis of context. There is never an analysis of the, the situation that predicated the statement. There is merely lied then, lied down. Every single time. And this was no, one of those not, cases. It's not human. It's not human. It's not consistent so not with human. the way humans exist on the planet. It's but ridiculous. Yes. It's not yes. human. And this is yes. the problem that we have with this particular tribunal. And I and see that, it also in court. You see it less in provincial court, in, in provincial court when you're dealing with judges, perhaps, than you do in other courts. But I see it happening in our courts, too. And it's really depressing. Because it's like some weird level of conservatism that's got into our our courts where there's just some sort of intolerance that exists for humans and the way that humans live, communicate, understand things, and function. And the courts courts don't see this because you can't get the cases on. You can't get enough of them in front of judges to point out a pattern and go every single time, this is the result. And even though there are cases like the Court of Appeal in Wyborn, for example, says, they could rely on his false statement at the roadside and reject his credibility. None of the cases have attempted to endorse the proposition that in all circumstances where somebody says something that isn't actually true, they must have their credibility rejected. And, and nor could they, because that, of course, would be hamstringing the decision-making powers of the adjudicator in a way that the court can't do in its supervisory function on judicial review. So this you decision... Find, that we could find Justice McEwen and see him if we can get him on your podcast. Because he figured it out. He figured it out in the first couple ones he had. I don't think he'd be allowed, Paul. He's retired. I still don't think he'd be allowed. He wouldn't be allowed. Um, But this decision kind of slightly, maybe, inched that back. Just an inch. But inched that back nevertheless. Because in this decision, the court dealt with my, my client's statement, which was he was specifically asked by the officer did you have anything in the last 15 minutes? And he said no, which was not his position on review. 
he acknowledged that he had lied, outright lied to the officer. And the adjudicator said, you lied to the officer when he asked you if you had anything in the last 15 minutes, so I don't believe you now. The problem is, and this is the problem with that reasoning that you're talking about, that that sort of, that, that um, what was the well, term We lack the used? term, right? We lack the term. It's not human. No, 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 but you used a term for the type of reasoning. It was like, uh, no, 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 like no. Ju justifying the outcome reasoning. Like oh, well, it's reverse engineering. Reverse, reverse engineering. engineering. Yes. It's that reverse engineering where the outcome is already clearly made up to find the guy lacking credibility. So where's the point where he lied? There's the point where he lied, even though in accepting that he lied when he said he hadn't had anything in the last 15 minutes, necessarily the adjudicator was accepting that he did have something in the last 15 minutes. She can't find that he both did and didn't drink in the last 15 minutes, but that is, is exactly what she did. He's, he's lying now, therefore mm -hmm. he was drinking, he was lying then. Which mm -hmm. one is it? You must conclude that he had something to drink in the last 15 minutes on that basis. Exactly. Yeah. And so you can't, you no can't accept, what, you can't, if you're going to reject him as a liar, then you have to reject him as a liar at the roadside and therefore yes. conclude that he had something to drink in the last 15 minutes. If you're going to reject him as a liar and say that, uh, you know, you can't just choose one and say, well, therefore he must have been lying then. Yes, it sounds exactly. like a Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of it like as a snake eating its own tail because it just goes round and round and round in uh -huh. circles. Um, so yeah, that was the that was that was the judicial review decision. So two, you know, I, I think minor victories, one major victory, two minor well, victories. But I, I think that's a significant victory. I can't wait to get a copy of the decision. I hope we rush ordered it. I'm sure we did. I asked Dana to order. <laughs> Hopefully she did. Um, Anna had ordered. Okay. Well, yeah, she's probably got on it. I'm sure she wants to see it too. Well, I'll check yeah. on it tomorrow. You'll be flying back from Yukon on Friday. I'll check to see if it's been ordered to make sure that it's been ordered on a rush order because I want to see it. I'll be, I'll be flying back from Yukon. We've talked about this a lot, but I wanted to spend just a few minutes uh, before we move on to your favorite part of the podcast, my favorite part of the podcast, I want to spend just a few minutes on this new legislation proposed by BC on freedom of information requests. Oh, this is huge. And I've been talking about it for a while. So backing up a little bit, you know, back in the first version of the IRP scheme, um, we recognized that there was a big problem with the approved screening devices and we started making freedom of information requests like crazy. And I made freedom of information requests all around the province, and I compelled the police to provide all of this information about their approved screening devices. And what did we determine? We determined that uh, in Port Moody, they were not calibrating them correctly and all sorts of other different locations across the province. And then what did we discover? We discovered that the Alco sensor for DWF was often malfunctioning, these ones that were in a certain serial number range. And ultimately, they pulled them from service and replaced them with the AlcoSensor FST. Our freedom of, of information requests changed the law, uh, changed the method in which they calibrate and test the approved screening devices, made the system more robust, and was a huge pain in the ass for us. And we also um, 
face the burden of going through all of that. And we were, you know, I suffered all sorts of personal attacks for doing it. Mm-hmm. On top of yep. that, now they want to make it costly. Yeah. Not only does it take forever, when not, oh, look, we did not just suffer personal attacks for doing it. We got dragged to court in litigation trying to prevent us from being allowed to practice in the area of immediate roadside prohibitions and superintendent motor vehicle cases in perpetuity. Yes, they um, were of the view that we had the, we were of the view that we had the secret recipe, and they sought to keep us from doing our jobs. And then yep. they backed down from that one, and ultimately we had a hearing on the rest of the substance of it, and we're not allowed to discuss basically any of that. But you can go find it if you really want a G and Lee. Yep, you can read all about it. We're not allowed to talk about what we found. I don't, I'm, I'm not even allowed to remember anymore what was in there. But I do remember being brought under attack because the government, after months and months and months of attempting to delay disclosing information on the basis of the fact that they were redacting things, finally provided information to us. And imagine the idea of having to pay $25 for the privilege of being sued Oh my because gosh. Because they screwed up. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. I think you're going to be on the Breaker newscast for this story. Think about this. Think about <laughs> the fact that we went through all of that and have uh-huh. to pay $25 to be sued. Yeah. Now they, so the, the point of the story here, if you're a listener from and not following the news, is that the BC government has announced this week uh, that they plan on charging $25 for every freedom of information request that is made. Now the RCMP charges $5 and that's a pain in the ass. 25, five times that, <clears throat> simple math, um, is a nightmare. And um, uh, a few journalists who are really digging have been identified as, as you know, making serial freedom of information requests. Frankly, all of this information that's requested in my view should just be available for people. The government could just publish it on websites. Um, their discussions, their emails about these things, maybe six months after they happen. But what happens? You make a freedom of information request. You find out about what the government's doing. You expose what the government's doing. The government's embarrassed by what they're doing, um, and they don't want to provide that information. And so now, how do they not want to? How do they want to obstruct your ability to get it? They want to charge you twenty-five dollars per request. It's ridiculous. It's shameful. Contrary contrary to a democracy. But it's also, you know, it's designed to obstruct people like us who, you know, all this FOI stuff that we've done and we've had to pay for FOI requests and we've had to pay for FOI disclosure when it's, you know, more hours. The most we paid is $1,100. I paid $1,100 for disclosure Mm -hmm. one case. Yep. Yep. And we paid it. And it's designed to. That $1,100 got rid of the BAC data master seat. It changed the, the. they, they they got rid of that device as an approved instrument in Canada. I said I said worth it, and then I realized that the BAC Data Master C was, despite its flaws, much better than the Intox CC2. Yes, I know. So my eleven hundred dollars that I spent exposed a problem that I had identified with the BAC Data Master C, which led the BAC Data Master C to be pulled from service, replaced with the Intox ECIR2, which is a less accurate breath testing device. Yep. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Canada. <laughs> I apologize. Oops. Um, 
I mean, the BAC Data Master C had a huge problem, though. So now we have legislation that says whatever the approved instrument is, it's, it's accurate, and you're not allowed to question it. Oh, it's yeah. so frightening because we, you know, we're the ones who figured that out, and now we are obstructed. And I can't afford to spend that kind of money. I don't have no, the money to. I don't have the money. Is you know, like it's not just one FOI, right? Twenty-five dollars. You're yeah. sitting there thinking to yourself, "That's no big deal." In order to get the stuff that I've needed to get in the past, I have to do ten of them. That's two hundred fifty dollars. One That's, FOI to discover the tip of the iceberg, mm -hmm. and then you FOI away. I'm I'm going to mix my metaphors here shipping and shipping at that rock until you find a gold nugget well yeah and and not just that that's that's after tax income right mm -hmm. so <laughs> that 25 dollars you've got to earn 45 dollars 40 dollars in order to be able to pay that 25 dollars so 10 of them 250 dollars you've got to earn 500 dollars. i you know this is for many people that's a car lease right like i'm driving a 20 year old car uh, for a reason, because it already is expensive to exist as a lawyer, and if no people can't afford to litigate, people cannot afford litigation, right? We found it, you know, we do it very cheaply, but otherwise, it's either the super rich corporations or people who are suing insurance companies like ICBC. Those are the only mm -hmm. people who can afford to litigate, or people who have legal aid, you know, criminal legal aid files, uh, who have legal aid lawyers. But the rest, the broad group of people in between who are our clients can't afford to litigate which is why we do everything so goddamn cheap so the margins are tight and now we have to spend you know i have to earn four hundred dollars in order to be able to to make the freedom of information requests that are necessary to get the information that's necessary to protect the integrity of the system and identify now we're on to two one approved instrument and one approved screening device that you and i i mean i did the first one but you and i did the second one identified as defective and got rid of and now are we going to be able to do that next time no no of course not not at 25 bucks a crap i'm very disappointed you know I, i'm people think that i'm some sort of partisan i used to be a member of the bc liberal party uh you know i like gordon campbell i felt he was a good manager uh it was completely turned into an ideological thing after that with christy clark it was a it was a, a nightmare of a bc liberal party Andrew Wilkinson, um, you know, was was unfortunately uh, I didn't feel I, I didn't feel was a departure from that. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, John Horgan has been a reasonable premier. There's been you know, he recognized from the start that they had to manage. I don't expect them to be perfect, um, but they recognized from the start that they have to manage. But now when they move into this situation where they are doing what they can to obstruct people from getting the information about things that they're doing uh that is contrary to a democracy and it's paternalistic and that is the reason glenn clark got turfed glenn clark didn't get turfed because uh of just because of fast ferries or because he had a deck that was built he got turfed because their government back then and you were a child then uh was just paternalistic <laughs> it was paternalistic. i remember glenn clark and his deck yeah, you know, I almost I had an opportunity to run over Glenn Clark once on uh, Water Street. He sort of stepped oh. halfway into the traffic, and I was driving back from court, and I thought, geez, you know, he was just before his trial. I thought, geez, I would have saved the taxpayers a lot of money. Bill Smart prosecuted him. You know, I went and watched part of the trial. It's um, a good anyway, thing you didn't. I, like, I don't advocate I, running over politicians. 
well. The thing is, I don't want to hurt anybody at any time. And uh, I actually think Glenn Clark's probably just a nice guy, but he wasn't, uh, he was never meant to be uh, the premier. And same with Christy Clark. Uh, Christy it's Clark. The guy and, who wanted a deck. No. Well, that was Bill Smart. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that was his view of it when he was running the trial. Who, want, who doesn't want a deck? Um, you know, kind of hard to be that upset about a guy who wants a deck, but Christy Clark and Glenn Clark. Why do we have all these Clarks? It's too many, too many white to British sounding names in our society running things. But um, Christy Clark and Glenn Clark both had the same skill, and that was they were great at being um, critics. They were great at attacking, and they were completely incapable of managing. And I guess Glenn Clark has been a reasonable manager since he started working for Jimmy Pattison because Jimmy's sure. kept him on. Uh, but while he was in government, he wasn't managing government. And Christy Clark failed fundamentally to manage. Um, and um, Gordon Campbell, another guy with a very UK name, did manage fairly well. And John Horgan, also managing fairly well. But this is paternalistic. And this is where they're, this is, this is the type of thing that is indicative of the pattern of behavior you see with some government that gets entrenched in government. And people were upset about them running and calling an election. And, you know, they wanted a majority and he held it out, you know, the same thing as, as Justin Trudeau did. We'd like to have a majority. This is a, this is a, uh, difficult times and we need a, you know, firm hand on the, on the wheel of the ship during these stormy seas. Um, and what do we have when they get a majority? You know, they, they want to take away the democracy. They want to mm -hmm. chip away at the, back to your metaphor, chip away at the democracy. And they want to chip away at the democracy, in this case, $25. Thinking $25, it's an easy sell. $25 is a hugely difficult thing when you have to do 50 uh, FOIs around the province. Because we yeah. have to FOI all of those different different police detachments you know I, I think yeah. i've got a list and i think there's about 12 of them or something like that that are that are subject to that foi and it's two or three foi's to each one of those detachments no big deal for those detachments to get three foi's right but yeah. if you've got 10 detachments with three foi's you know you're now getting to the point where it is it is prohibitively expensive for us to get the information that protects british columbians yeah. Sorry, that was a five-minute monologue. That's okay. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. So, well, I appreciate I, that. I, I, I'm fucking pissed off about it. Well, it's let me so tell quick. you something that's going to make you not pissed off. Oh, yeah? Let's hear it. It's time for... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Ridiculous driver of the week. Awesome. What is it? <laughs> Which is it? <laughs> Who well, is it? What did they do? It's, it's something I've been waiting for. I have been waiting for this glorious, beautiful day. We've seen it in California. We've seen it across America. We've seen it in the UK. We even saw it in our next door neighbors, Alberta. But until last week, we did not have our own self-driving sleeper. Oh my goodness! Yeah, this is the one on the uh, what bridge was it? Was it the the Second Narrows? Iron Workers Memorial. Viaduct. 
I thought it was the viaduct for some reason. I don't think so. I think it's no, no. Is, are you talking about the woman who's asleep in the Tesla? Yes. I think that's on the Ironworkers Bridge. So this, if you're not better. from British Columbia, if you're not from the lower mainland of British Columbia, you don't know this bridge. This bridge is a fantastic span. We call it the second narrows because it's the second narrow part of the Burrard Inlet where you could build a bridge. And when but we it was call built, it the Ironworkers because they all died. We call it the Iron Workers Memorial because it collapsed partway during construction and several people died, iron workers. And so it's a memorial bridge. But it is also a terrifying bridge to drive across because it is so high up um, mm -hmm. and traffic is moving fast. It's the three speed lanes in each direction. It's, it's not, What's it's that? not three lanes. The speed limit is 70. And at yeah. some points, it's more than three lanes. At some no, points, no, it's, it's like... It's, as, it's three as lanes getting onto the bridge. Oh yeah, okay, maybe. But on the actual terrifying part of the bridge, it's three lanes, and and it's it's scary. It's scary to drive across, and it's actually the 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 deck can be slippery. Oh, um, narrow. Traffic's moving fast, and this is one of the terrifying things of when you get to the lower mainland, when you hit Chilliwack, and you're driving to British Columbia, you discover that everybody's driving 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. And they're all driving less than a car length apart. And this <laughs> continues all the way across the Iron Workers Memorial. And this person was sleeping in their Tesla. Yep. It was uh, appeared to be a young woman, her seat slightly reclined. I watched the video. It was uh, Jordan Armstrong from Global. I watched it, the video from his story. Uh, they had blocked off her, her face a little bit, obscured her. What did she get a ticket for in the end? Driving without due care and detention. So $368, six demerits. Penalty points, yeah. If she, if, she, people, if she pays it. I loved all the people on Twitter when I, was, when I posted about it that were like, oh, maybe there's a defense here. Like, no. <laughs> literally sleeping is about the least amount of care and detention you could provide to your Well, driving. I was thinking, what if she had a heart attack? You know, what if she well, that, was dead? That, that would not be meet the, the men's rea standard. I know. So there is some defenses there. There are defenses. I mean, something could it could be as, you know, she could have suddenly gotten if, really sick. If she's dead, she can't she can't dispute the ticket, Paul. And North Vancouver RCMP would still give her a ticket. I really there's a number of Vancouver yeah, there is listening right now. <laughs> there's a number of junior Vancouver officers who would give her a ticket. So this bridge spans from North Vancouver to Vancouver um, and uh, right on the edge of Burnaby. So there's numerous jurisdictions that could have dealt with her. the integrated road safety unit. I know some of those some of those officers would have given her a ticket if she was dead. Anyway, um, yeah, so we finally have one. Well, the one in Alberta, um, as I recall, was someone from British Columbia and their Tesla. And they were doing, I think, 140 kilometers an hour while asleep. And I yep. mentioned before on the podcast, I I was on the East-West Connector, which is also a busy highway, but not as quite as terrifying as this one. Uh, and there was somebody in the left-hand lane reading a novel, <laughs> drying their Tesla, like no hands on the wheel, both hands on their book. Um, the uh, on the one hand, you're sitting there, you're thinking to yourself, I mean, I'm not a Tesla owner, and neither are you. All of these people keep saying that you should be buying a Tesla. I think you're fine oh, with yeah. your, uh, I think you're fine with your Kia Stigma, and uh, I don't you know, have the money for that. 
I'll continue driving my Buick. Um, the uh, but you know the day will come when we probably have these cars that have some sort of version of autopilot. I noticed Tesla calls it autopilot. I wonder if they own if they registered that trademark somehow. I don't see how they could. Um, but maybe in the context of cars, they can. Um, but in any event, uh, you know, I expect some sort of self-driving um, or vehicle that can take over part of the driving duties. Uh, you know, the the family the family minivan here will has lane departure and and um, uh, cruise control that's intelligent cruise control, and I find that that is a different experience for me driving it and and paying attention. Um, but I expect the time will come. And uh, I'm looking forward to the day I can, you know, safely have a nap. That would be my yep. only time to have a nap. It might be mine too, so. Somebody, somebody commented on Twitter that, you know, somebody's going to die behind the wheel of a Tesla and it's just going to keep driving till it runs out of, <laughs> till it runs out of power. We'll get get you back home. Until it gets to wherever the GPS is programmed. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to your house and you'll just be dead in your Tesla. Unless you're like an Uber driver or something, you'll be picking people up dead. Oh, don't worry, he's just asleep. <laughs> anyway, yep, that was a pretty ridiculous driver. That video was just awful. And it's such a dangerous place to not be paying attention. Yep. Anyway, well, that's our podcast, Paul. Well, it was lots of pontificating today from my end. I apologize. That's okay. Was it, man, was it mansplaining or was it pontificating? It's Is there a difference? Little column of A, little column of B. <sighs> well, see, this is what happens when we're not face to face and you can't, you know, wave at me to get me to stop talking. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Well, um, uh, if you need to reach us, give us a call at 604-685-8889. Or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.